All right, good morning, church. My name is Amy Smith, and I serve as a deacon here, and I also lead a, lead a small group. I'm so happy to be here this morning to read God's Word with you. So if you'll open up your copy of the Word to Ruth 1, we'll go ahead and get started. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of the wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Thanks, Amy. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would just illuminate your word today, that you'd help us to receive it, that our hearts would be good soil for the gospel, and that it would bring about fruit in our lives, God. We, we know that these words, this story comes from you, so we receive it from you, Lord. And we ask for your blessing, especially for those that are in a very dark hour right now. Maybe they bring a, a burden full of griefs. Um, Maybe they're weighted down by circumstance around them or inside them. And I pray, Lord, that for those that are in a very dark time, that you would speak hope into their lives today. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I already mentioned this earlier, and I, uh, but this week I loved getting to see these new images of the stars in the universe from the Webb Telescope. NASA uh, released like several different images on Tuesday, and I don't know if you saw those. Um, I think there's going to be a picture on the screen. Yeah. So basically, these aren't just stars. These are stars that are way far out, (laughs) and this is the first images that we've taken of these stars, and now we get to see them. It stirred in me a a mind just for worship that he names every one of them. He spoke the universe into existence. And if you're uh, from a place where you could see the stars, that means you're not from the city, like me, and you lived on some highway road out in the middle of anywhere, you know what light pollution is, right? The further you get towards the city, the harder it is to see the stars, right? But out in the reaches of the country and places where you cannot see any light coming up from the city, you can see many more stars, And in a very similar way, this story that we're going to begin today in the book of Ruth, it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible, favorite love story in the Bible. It's set in a season of darkness. And the first scene in this season of darkness, we're going to find a grieving mother, grieving wives, a terrible moment for this group of people. And as we walk through this story, uh, in the midst of this darkness, we're going to see that hope somehow becomes brightest in moments where it seems like we shouldn't have any hope, where there's no light pollution, as you would say. And so scene one of this, there's a conclusion that's going to be made throughout this entire story, that God is still moving even when we can't see his hand, even when we're in the worst season. 
No matter where you're at, whatever you're walking through, God is still working even in our darkest moments. So we're gonna, I'm going to divide this up into two sections. First, dark times, what did they look like? What did these desperate times call for? And then second, words of hope that Naomi would receive in the field. So let's start with just the dark times that were going on. The first statement in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, is that in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Two things. First, the period of judges. This is a specific period in history of Israel where it would have been very difficult for us to live, for anyone to live. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. I'm going to go through several verses that describe this cycle of Judges, first starting in Judges 17.6. This summarizes these dark times. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, there was no place for authority in any of the people's lives. They looked at authority and said, we reject that. No, no kind of authority, neither God's or any authority in their government. They did whatever was right. And this led to a cycle of renewal that would happen throughout all of the chapters of Judges. Richard Loveless, in his book about spiritual renewal, describes these cycles, and I've kind of reworded them. And he, he describes it as the generation gap. So first, I want to I kind of walk through five pieces of the puzzle. The first one would be this, that there's a passing and rising of a generation. So you have an old generation that passes, a new generation that comes. First, generations. They would have known the stories of God and they obeyed him, okay? This is what happened. They would hear these stories over and over and they believed it because they had seen it with their own eyes. Look at Judges 2, 7. First, there's a group of people. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had what? Seen all the great work which the Lord had done for Israel. In other words, they had seen it with their own eyes and they believed it. Now, all of these people passed away. They were collected to their fathers. It goes on to say in verse 10, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers and they arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work which he had done for Israel. Now, imagine this for a moment. You've got a whole group of people who could retell the stories to one another about how God had worked marvelously and miraculously for their sake. They pass away. you got a new generation that rises up. And now those stories of old begin to be forgotten. They did not know the Lord, and they did not know His work. Second phase, popular idolatry. There was apostasy. Enculturation of everything that you've forgotten. It leaves all this space for new stories to be absorbed. Because the hearts and memories of the succeeding generation, this is Richard Lovelace, were emptied of the experience of the Lord and His mighty acts, they became filled with the idolatry of the surrounding culture like an empty sponge which had been dropped in filthy water. So I want you to picture a new generation rising up. They're not saturated. Imagine a sponge that you drop into your mop bucket, okay? It's completely dry, and what it absorbs is everything around it. He describes a period of judges like that, that basically a new generation would rise up. They were empty of these stories. They did not know God or the stories about what he had done. And they're saturated with the culture. 
And when this happened and they walk away from the Lord, God brought national affliction or some type of punishment and correction. This was punitive. Anytime you see God's corrective power, it's not as cruel as it could be, right? He's allowing some type of affliction so that they might not get as bad as it possibly could get in order to turn back their hearts. And then there would be a people that would cry out in repentance. God would hear their cries for mercy. Judges 2.18 says it this way, Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. He describes this cycle. First, there's a generation that knows the things of God. There's another generation that do not know who God is or His works. They've forgotten and they begin to absorb the culture around them, the pagan culture all around them. There's this national apostasy, idolatry, a national affliction. And then the people begin to cry out and they say, Lord, please help us, save us. And God sends a judge The judge saves them, and there's a time of peace and renewal. Now, if you can imagine that this is the dark times that they're going through, there's this cycle of generation, new generation, forgetfulness. They they take up the culture. They they, uh, adopt idolatry, and then God judges them. And he describes in the beginning, whoever the narrator is, describes the beginning of this story of a lady named Ruth, and her mother-in-law named Naomi, as being during the period of Judges. So first, you've got to reference uh, what is the time in history. And where might they be on this cycle of history, of renewal? Well, the second statement about the time period of this story is that there's a famine. Nationally, they're hungry. There's no rains. There's no crops. Something has forbidden them in order to feed themselves. And so they experience the lowest part of the cycle of judges. Affliction. Now, before I move forward beyond this dark period of time, I just want to point out that this cycle of renewal that happens in judges functions not only macro level for nations and people groups that we would forget the things of God, forget what he's done, forget his stories, and then drift away from him. That cycle of renewal also is happening on the individual level of every person's heart. Right? And does any, anybody feel familiar with this story that you remember God's work for a while and then you forget his work, you drift away, you experience some kind of consequence from drifting away, and then you cry out to God and he heals you and brings you back and he hears and he heals. Does anyone feel very familiar with that kind of cycle? Hopefully, for every believer, this cycle is becoming progressively closer to heaven and closer to the experience that God would have for his people. Now, in this story, there's a famine in the land. So within the cycle of Judges, they're on the lowest part of the cycle. They're without food in a place called Bethlehem. Now, immediately, this should ring memories in your head and your heart if you've been around Christendom for your life of the little town of Bethlehem, that one day there's going to be a king that came from this town, David, and then ultimately Jesus. This town of Bethlehem, the name literally means the house of bread. So there's a famine in the house of bread, 
and you've got this man who decides to leave. He sets out on a journey. Now, some people would stay and cry out for God's mercy because that's what he's described would happen. In Exodus and Deuteronomy, when God sets before his people blessings and curses, he says, look, there's going to be times if you walk away from me, you're going to experience famine. The clouds are going to be like bronze, he says. Wombs are going to be barren. It's going to be very dark and difficult. But if you turn back to me, I'll restore your fortunes. Now, there are certain people throughout this cycle of God's people that would cry out in every season saying, Lord, be merciful to us. Restore us. But this specific family that we're focused in on, he decides to leave. Now, one of the questions that we should be asking about Elimelech is this. Is this an act of faith? Or is this an act of unbelief? Which one is it? Because there's lots of stories where people set out on journeys. It's not necessarily wrong to set out on a journey. When God commands that you go, Abraham left and he had faith and God accounted it to him as righteousness. But in this story, it seems as if this was an act of unbelief. It was an act of pursuing his own solution to the problem. Now, why was this a problem that he would go to Moab? Now, I'm going to go through a few uh, reasons. First, the origins of Moab, okay? (laughs) Moab was not a place where God's people wanted to hang out. It had come from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. His firstborn daughter looks around and says, there's not a man living with whom I can have a child. So she gets Lot drunk. She has sex with him. And then they have this people group called the Moabites, okay? The Bible... Just an honest book about some real people. Compelling history, right? Now, if you think your family has some weird stuff going on, I just want to encourage you to read the book. Take a look inside. No matter how unique your story, it's not that special, okay? So this is the origin of this group of people, the Moabites. And they had long since been enemies of God's people. You guys remember the story of Balak, the king of Moab? He summons Balaam, the donkey that talks. You guys remember that story? God turns what he intended for curses into God's people's blessing. He describes how they were leaving Egypt and they should have brought out bread and drink for God's people, but instead they were harsh to them. It says this in Deuteronomy 23. This is how he describes this group of people. No Ammonite or Moabite may ever may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Why? Why? Why can't they enter? Because... They did not meet you with bread and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pithor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But what happened? Verse 5, but the Lord did not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord God loved you. Something's incomplete on that verse. (laughs) The Lord God loved his people. So, The separation between this people group and the Israelite children, it had to do with the fact that they had not only been a terrible enemy to God's people, God's love for his people had turned what they intended to do to curse God's people into a blessing for God's people. 
This long history of being enemies continues in Judges chapter 3. Now, if you guys aren't familiar with the story of Eglon, the fat king of Moab, when the people are doing what's evil in God's sight, God strengthens the fat king. The fat king comes and takes them all captive, and they all become his slaves. For 18 years, this happens. They had lived in slavery to the Moabite people. They'd been delivered from this. From Ehud, who comes to rescue God's people, you guys should definitely read that story. It's a perfect one for middle school boys. Now, you guys can imagine being enslaved for 18 years to this people group, being delivered from it, and now they're in a very difficult time. It almost seems like a, a reminiscent of the story in Exodus chapter 16. They get out of Egypt. Do you guys remember this story? They're there. They're all getting hungry, and some of them start complaining and say, we had it better back in Egypt. Elimelech is looking back towards this place that they had been delivered from, a place that they had been set free from by God's grace, and he's looking there in order to make provision for his family. It's not wrong to make provision for your family. Nothing wrong with that. But it's the lowest bar that God's called husbands and fathers to. He doesn't just want us to make financial provision for our families. It seems as if Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, his actions would seem to say otherwise. Rather than praying out for God's mercy and crying out with God's people and waiting on his deliverance, he makes a deliverance for himself. Well, side note here, both rebellion and religion can be our own pursuit of delivering ourselves. It can be an attempt of making provision, making up your own solution. This sojourn seems as if he's trying to make his own solution to the problem that had been created because of sin. A lot of folks would run away from God's judgment. And that's exactly what Satan would want us to do, to run away from the judgment or the justice of God. It's a very unpopular subject. God wants us to be convicted of sin and turn towards him. Satan just wants to condemn us of sin so that we would run away, avoid this justice, and pretend that everything's going to be okay just over the horizon. Now, Elimelech from Bethlehem could see just over the Dead Sea, the fields of Moab, and he could see it. And a lot of people, whenever we feel like our circumstances aren't giving us what we want, we act trying to bring about our own solutions to the problems. Now, this is true throughout the story of Ruth, okay? Lots of attempts at solving the problems. There's no moral judgment on it. We're just kind of left to assume whatever we will about it. But in the same way, I would say a lot of people see something, some provision that they don't have, and they seek to make their own provision for themselves, their own solution. Maybe you're saying, if I could just get married, or if I could just get unmarried, or if I could just get my kids launched, if I just had a better job, or better pay, or more money, or a better house, or a different house, whatever it is, there's a lot of ways that we might reach for some solution to our problems rather than turning to a Savior. Before I move on from this specific piece of these dark times, I just want to speak to fathers and husbands. Be careful that you don't only place your focus on providing for your family. God's also called you to be a spiritual protector 
a spiritual provider. And he's the one who wants to bring about the solution to whatever dark place that you're in. But in order to avoid the famine, Elimelech leads his family away from God's people, isolated in a place where for 10 years they didn't gather with God's people. 10 years. And then while he's there, not only is he pursuing a solution, their dreams of having life come to death. Elimelech dies. The head of the household, the one who's led his family to Moab, dies. He leaves his wife and his two sons in the hope that he would avoid death. He's walked straight into it. Listen, if there's a lot of energy that you're spending just to avoid death, know this, God holds together your heartbeat, your breath. He's giving it to you as a gift. It's a gift that you're not guaranteed to have. No matter the proficiency of doctors or where you go, there's no place you can hide from God's presence. We have this place in history, an Ephrathite family, a father who's leading them to some other place who hopes that he might help them survive, and then he dies. Then, right after this, tragedy strikes again. No, not the sons dying. They marry Moabite women. This is not good. Okay? This was against God's law. Deuteronomy 7.3 says, Don't intermarry with any foreigner, any Canaanite, which would have included the Moabites. Don't marry them. Don't take them as wives. And these two sons of his, they've absorbed the culture around them. They take for themselves wives. And now, in this moment, here you have a family, a, a mother, two sons, two daughters, and then they stay there for 10 years. No children in 10 years. They both die. Now, I can't imagine the dark place that Naomi must have been in in this moment. She's already buried her husband. Now she buries her two sons. The lowest moment possibly of her life. Completely empty. That's how she describes it. I left full, now I'm empty. You ever been there? Have you ever been to a place where you say, hey, there's nothing left. I have nothing. I Whatever I thought was empty, this is now the new empty. Many of you could probably call to memory immediately the lowest moment of your life. Disillusioned, dreams completely devastated, and that is a precious gap. It's this gap in the life of everyone who suffers where the gospel has potential to get in. It's this place. Look, tragedy, the good news about this tragedy is that it's not the end of the story. Naomi, picture her now, three funerals. She's in a field. In all the hopes of other people making provision for her, she's still working. She's old now. She can't get remarried. She can't have another kid. She says it in the next verses. She's out in this field trying to make provision. And suddenly... All the other things that possibly mattered to her no longer matter, and she gets word. She gets word. Look at verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. Why did she rise to return? She had heard in the fields of Moab 
that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. She receives this hopeful word. She receives it at the only possible moment to receive it. The only way that this would seem hopeful is that she's seen all of the things that she had pursued for life with her husband misleading her, perhaps. They get to this place and all of their dreams dash at the very bottom. She's able to receive this hopeful word. Now, if any of you are at the lowest point of your life right now or most devastated, I want to point out to you that that's an opportunity for you. A potential opportunity to receive something more hopeful Because it's in those spaces where we become disillusioned with everything the world has promised us that we're able to hear what God actually has to offer us. Mark Sayers, in his book, Reappearing Church, he says it like this, as the gap between what our culture promises and what it delivers grows wider, its failures create openings for the gospel. Idols are shown for what they are. New potentials open up for God to gain. Again, move. In other words, in all of those spaces where we feel most disillusioned by the promises that have left us wanting, this is an opportunity to receive God's hopeful word. And what does she hear? What does she hear? She hears of two things. First, that God has visited his people and that they have food. His presence and his provision. This is what she hears and receives, that God has brought his presences back. This is a beautiful picture in the Chronicles of Narnia, in the first book, or in the line which in the wardrobe. It's the first book to be written, but not chronologically. So they're, they're all awaiting winter to be over. It's like winter always, never Christmas, and they're waiting, waiting, waiting for word that Aslan has returned, the God figure in the place. And they quote this prophecy that happens. It says, Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. There's this picture of her receiving the word in the field. She's working to make provision. She's hoping against hope. And in this moment, she hears word that God has visited his people and he's made provision. Now, God's presence always leads to uh, proper functioning and flourishing for humanity, for the whole world. His presence always leads to functioning and flourishing. So as he's visited them, he's also brought about food for them. And how does she respond to this hopeful word? Look at, look at the verse again. She rises and she returns. She gets up from her ashes, from her grief, the place that's not working. She acknowledges this isn't working. And she returns. So I'm wrapping up. Conclusion. I want to ask you this question, and I have a few follow-up questions for you. Have you received the hopeful word of Christ? Have you received this hopeful word? Have you come to the end of your desperate measures to make provision for yourself? Have you, brought, have you been brought to an opportunity where you're able to hear that God is actually giving us something that we cannot give ourselves? Follow-up question. Are you seeking his presence? Are you seeking to escape his presence? 
in this story, it seems as if they're seeking to escape God's judgment. And you know that there's a varied response when I talk about God being present in any space, right? If I just said, hey, God is with us in this room. For those that belong to him, for the contrite, they're receiving his presence as a gift. But for those that are proud, they receive his presence as a threat. Have you received the hopeful word of God's visitation? Again, Mark Sayers in Reappearing Church, he says this, to the contrite of heart, the humble, the meek in spirit, God's presence is received as waves of love. Yet for the proud, the rebellious, the autonomous, the individuals and systems that wish to continue Adam and Eve's rebellion to reanimate the project of Babylon, to reach for progress without presence for such people and systems, those same waves of love that are God's presence are experienced as judgment. So, follow up. Are you receiving the hopeful word of God's presence to us? The ultimate visitation of God to earth is through Jesus Christ. He came and dwelt among us. He showed us His glory. He revealed what He's like and how He works. And He accomplished something on our behalf. He reconciles us to God when we place our faith in Him. So have you received the hopeful word of God's visitation? His presence. Second follow-up question. Am I receiving God's provision or am I seeking to make my own? As long as you're seeking to make your own provision for whatever it is, rather than turning to God, you will continue to turn away from Him, pursuing your own means. But if you can receive his means of provision, there's a rising and turning back. Have you ever turned back to this hopeful place where in the middle of darkness, you said, hey, this isn't working for me. I need to turn back. She rises, she returns. And this is ultimately what the Christian life is, rising and returning, rising and returning, Rising and returning. Martin Luther in the 95 Thesis. Y'all know what the first one? It said this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. In other words, we should be marked by returning to these words. Returning to God's presence and His provision for us. Turning again and again to the Savior from our problems, turning again to the Savior from our solutions, turning again to the Savior in our grief, turning again to Him. So some of you might still be turning towards bitterness, which, hey, even though she rises and turns, we're going to look at it next week, she's still awful bitter. I mean, she is still upset. She blames God. She doesn't blame her husband or the circumstances. She's like, God, you did all of these bad things to me. There's probably some of you in this room that are holding on to certain bitterness in your life where you say, I don't understand how God has worked in this. I don't know what he's seeking to accomplish. And some of you, there's not some answer. There's not some simple answer for what you're walking through right now. There's not some simple answer to all the grief that Naomi was experiencing. But the invitation when she heard the word was clear. She turned away from all the ways of making her own means and she turned back towards God's people and back towards this word that he had visited them and that he was making provision for them. 
And so if today, if that's our hope, that he's, his presence is the place where we would flourish and function, if we're placing our hope in that reality, we get to celebrate it over and over and over again, ultimately through what Jesus Christ has done for us. So today, as we close God's word, I want to bring us back to this place where we rehearse again the gospel. In just a moment, we're going to take communion. And we're returning. We're rising and returning to the truth that Jesus Christ has provided himself for us. He's made the ultimate provision for us. Through his death and resurrection, his blood was shed to absorb God's wrath. And so we come not seeking to escape God's judgment, but believing that God's judgment ultimately has been poured out on Jesus. We come back to this place weekly where we remember and we rejoice. So let's pray together to that end and rise and return. And Lord, thank you for your word today. I pray that it would speak uh, volumes specifically to those that are hurting today that feel like they can't escape terrible circumstances. And I pray that in the midst of those circumstances, they would hear your voice calling out with hope to rise and return. For those that are enduring terrible grief today, I pray that you would bind up the brokenhearted, that you would speak comfort to them so that they would just be drawn in to your presence. They wouldn't avoid your presence. Lord, I pray that you would have your way with the remainder of our time together. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.